episode of Counterculture Parents. I'm Kurt Bruner, your host. So what we're going to be listening to today is is highlights from an interview I had the opportunity to conduct with author Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher is a very smart guy. He's a highly respected author. And a couple of the books he's written have really had far-reaching impact, uh, particularly among church leaders, but also everyday families. One called The Benedict Option. In it, he emphasizes that we're swimming in different water than past generations. Things are becoming increasingly antagonistic to Christian belief and values in our Western societies. And what are the implications of that? And how do we navigate that, particularly as church leaders and as families trying to raise the next generation? Then more recently, he's written a book that's really getting a lot of attention called Live Not By Lies. But basically, it's a book of stories and observations from those who survived Soviet totalitarianism and their concerns and advice to those of us in the West, because they're seeing similar trends happening in different packages, but they have the same effect. And as a result, we begin to either feel resistance from the culture or we begin to acclimate ourselves to those realities and then they become our normal. And we want to raise our children in the truth, not in the lies. And so with that, let's listen as Rod Dreher and I are discussing his book, The Benedict Option. I tend to focus in my writing on the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. Um, I remember back, I was living in Dallas, working as as an opinion columnist and editorial writer, and I read this amazing book by Alistair McIntyre. Uh, contemporary philosopher. He's still alive today. He was a Marxist when he wrote it, and has since converted to Christianity. But uh, he wrote this book called After Virtue in the early 1980s. And he had this famous last paragraph in the book that compared the times we're living in now to the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Uh, And McIntyre said, back then, there was a group of men and women uh, who left Rome, the city of Rome, uh, to go out and, and form communities where they can live out their faith during the Dark Age and keep the traditions alive. Well, he was talking about the Benedictine monks and nuns. Uh, and he said at the very end, maybe what we're waiting for is a new, doubtless very different, St. Benedict. Well, I thought, who is St. Benedict? I mean, the diagnosis seems right, but who is St. Benedict? I knew very little about him, even though I was a Catholic at the time. He ended up founding what was called the Benedict, we call now the Benedictine Order. Um, And he wrote something called The Rule of St. Benedict, which is just a a thin little book about how to live in community and vowed community. When he died in the year, I think it was 547, he had founded 12 or 13 monasteries around Rome. The Benedictine order grew and grew and grew, and they would go out in Western Europe, which was then ruled by barbarians. They would found monasteries, and they would teach the local people. They would teach them the gospel. They would also teach them how to do things that had been forgotten when Rome fell, like how to grow gardens, how to do metallurgy, that sort of thing. And within their monasteries and the libraries, they kept alive scripture. They kept recopying scripture and also the classics that had come down from Greco-Roman times. They laid the groundwork for the rebirth of civilization in the West. Well, what I saw, what McIntyre meant by St. Benedict was we need people today in our time who can respond creatively to the crisis of meaning, the crisis of the collapse of uh, our civilization's institutions and ways of life, and ways they can do it that are, that, that manage to preserve the faith but not in a way of like hiding out, heading for the hills, and just hunkering down and being very quiet. The Benedictines were not cloistered, usually. They would go out into the world and help 
people. I mean, they, they did have to live apart in some way, but they, they wanted their work to benefit the people in the community. And that's what we need to do. Something that jumped out at me, because I've been working with families and with churches who are trying to strengthen families for some time now, Something that jumped out at me was you make the case that we need to maintain a distinctive Christian identity as the world around us collapses, falls apart, becomes more antagonistic and such. And I remember thinking when uh, I read that, and I thought, that is so right, but you use the word maintain a Christian identity. And I remember thinking, do we in the West actually even have a Christian identity? Is it maintain one? Or are we really facing the challenge in our churches of helping our people actually foster and, and build a Christian identity that's distinctive? This is the thing I worry about, that so many of us American Christians, regardless of denomination, have gotten into. This idea that middle-class professional success is our true God. And insofar as following the Lord Jesus Christ gets in the way, uh, stands to inhibit our assimilation, um, then a lot of us are willing to put Jesus aside. You know, the, I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. Fantastic film based on the true story of Franz Jägerstädter. He was an Austrian farmer who was murdered by the Nazis uh, because he refused to sign allegiance to Hitler. And uh, there's a scene in there where Jägerstädter, you know, he's, he lives in an alpine village, but Nazism found them there. There was nowhere to hide from it. Um, and he's facing increased pressure to conform. All the other people who go to his Catholic church conformed. What's wrong with him? He said, I can't do it. I cannot put Hitler before God. Franz goes into his church at one point, the village church, and there's an artist who's painting frescoes on the wall of biblical scenes. And the artist tells him, you know, people come here and look at these and they admire Jesus. They admire the figures uh, of the Bible in these stories. But Jesus didn't call admirers. He called disciples. And how can you tell the difference when the time comes to suffer for your faith? I knew as far back as 2005 when I first encountered uh, Christian Smith's work on moralistic therapeutic deism, I realized, you know, he's talking about young people, but this is the kind of Christianity I was raised in. As I said earlier, you know, we, my family went to church on Easter and Christmas, and that's about it. But we didn't think we had to go to church because everybody's Christian anyway. Well, in fact, Christian Smith, the conclusion of all of that research, I remember, is one statement. We get what we are. This yeah. is what he said to parents. We get what we are. Our so, children basically emulate what we become. And we become products of our culture more than we are disciples of Christ. I remember going in 2017, just before the book came out, I went to speak, uh, give some lectures at an evangelical college. And I, I gave, the, one of the lectures I gave was about discipline, the importance of discipline and discipleship, spiritual disciplines in the religious life. And all the students were there, there were hundreds of them, and then there was Q&A. This young woman stood up, raised her hand, and said, Sir, I listened to this lecture, and what I want to know is, why isn't it enough that we just love the Lord Jesus with all our hearts? I said, well, that's where it starts, but if we're going to deepen that initial the initial conversion of falling in love with Christ, it's going to require developing spiritual disciplines to get us through the hard times when that emotion goes away. After the, the, that Q&A was over, one of the professors came to me and said, um, that young woman, her question to you and her incomprehension represents about how 99% of these kids at this campus think about their faith. 
He said they come to us out of church youth groups where they've been surrounded by kids who think like them. They come to this campus. It's an evangelical school. They're here for four years. And then they go out into the world. And they find that the world is made up of people who don't understand Christianity and in many cases are hostile to it. And they don't know what to do because the first time somebody tells them that Christianity is mean, they collapse. And that is the sort of thing that we've got to deal with. We've got to pr produce more resilient young people because Christianity is, by the lights of this world, mean and bigoted and all these bad things. But this is a stereotype. And if we don't disciple our young people and disciple ourselves, we're going to collapse when that pressure comes upon us. It's just going to happen. If I'm a Christian parent today, uh, I'm going to have to make some courageous choices counterculture choices. For example, very practically, do I give my child a, a, a smartphone at 10 years old, 12 years old, which is now the norm, right? Well, the wider culture, everyone's doing that. Uh, if we follow the script of the norm, okay, I hand my old one down to my, my child and, and they have it. We know how formative something like that is at a critical period of a child's formation in so many ways. But if you choose as a parent not to do that, you're actually making that child weird to their yeah. peers. If you have a teenage child who truly embraces the Christian ethic of sexuality and human dignity, they're considered hateful in this generation and therefore on the outs with uh, what is considered virtuous, right? Is that is accept any uh, sexual uh, orientation or, or expression. So back to the parent and back to the churches who are coaching these parents. That can't be done in isolation, right? You need that reinforcing communities. One of the reasons I was so excited about what you did with the Benedict Option was you highlighted this very need. Sure. It's reinforcing communities that help us um, brave these difficult or courageous choices. The question is, do you see that happening in particularly the United States among churches and any examples where you're seeing that happen? Well, I'll back up a little bit and say that when I try to explain the Benedict Option to people who haven't read the book, I say, look, we have to live uh, in Jeremiah 29 when the Lord, through the prophet, told the Jews in the Babylonian captivity, told the Hebrews to stay there, brought you here for a reason, you know, take wives, pray for the peace of the city. I think that's what we, the church, are called to do. But we also have to remember the first uh, chapters of the book of Daniel, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three faithful Hebrew youth. You couldn't get more assimilated or more embedded, I should say, in Babylonian life than being servants of the king. But when it came time for them to bow down before the grave and idol, those young men chose the prospect of a horrible death before apostasy. And... Uh, in terms of the Benedict option, I say we need to live, even as we are embedded in the world, we need to live in such a way that if we're put to the test, we and our kids know what we have to do. You know, so we live in the world but not of it. That's when it comes down to it. And again, it goes back to suffering. Now, the, the whole question of smartphones is absolutely critical. Do you know that same evangelical college I was talking about, a conservative college where I spoke a few years ago, uh, I stayed at a, at a bed and breakfast near campus that was run by the retired campus minister and his wife. And he told me that he still keeps his hand in campus ministry, even though he's retired. 
he mentors a group of uh, young men, undergraduate men, who plan to go to seminary when they get their degree. He said, there's 16 young men in our group. How many of them do you think have a problem with pornography? Meaning, they watch pornography and they can't quit, though they want to quit. I said, six or seven? He said, no, 16. They all do, and it all started with smartphones. You know, not only with the technology itself, but with the culture that comes along with it. Now, parents know you can't deny it now that this is an enormous problem and it has has such ramifications not only for the spiritual life of the kids but their moral lives um, I was reading something recently where doctors are seeing young people coming into uh, hospitals with sexual traumatic sexual injuries because they don't know any other way to have sex in this violent stuff that's coming to them by smartphones so you can't compromise on that but look we and my family we have three kids they're older now but we had to fight these fights and we're still fighting the fight with our youngest who's 15 she doesn't have a smartphone and she's weird and it hurts her you know and it hurts us as parents to see her suffer because she goes to a Christian school all of her friends go there they all have smartphones and it's so difficult to get parents on the same page here because parents there's such pressure to conform by the world around us and and uh, parents don't want to feel judged and so we you, know, you have to walk a careful line because you don't want your friends your Christian friends to feel judged at the same time this is a massive massive thing so uh, I have not yet found a community it may exist but I, I, I live in Baton Rouge I haven't heard about it that has done this well but it has got to happen because if you surrender on smartphone and all that um, it's game over almost certainly because you're 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 making your child part of a corrupting culture that's going to be hard for them to get out of and it's not just that I, I was in Slovenia recently a country of former Yugoslavia where uh, my book is more recent book was published and my translator was a Catholic father maybe in his late 40s he said I need you to pray for me and my wife and our daughter. She's 12 years old and she's profoundly depressed. He said, we got her a smartphone last year and she ended up hooking up uh, online with some older teenagers in Oregon, in the U.S. And they told her, well, you know, what's your gender identity? You've got to choose before your, your body chooses for you. You have 26 options. And uh, the dad said, we didn't know any of this was going on. And next thing you know, that's all she thinks about. She doesn't want to eat. She doesn't want to go to school. They have colonized her mind with this garbage. And, uh, and I didn't want to say to the dad, this is the fruit of this. But this is what happens. And his daughter is suffering horribly. And as we know from seeing how rapid uh, onset gender dysphoria, which is especially hitting girls, this is coming from these smartphones. Last point, too. Um, the loneliness of kids today, of the youngest generation, it's off the charts. There was a, a poll done by Cigna, the health insurer, insurer a couple years ago, uh, that found that something like 60% of Americans described themselves as lonely. Now, you would think it would be worse than the oldest generation because old age often brings loneliness with it. Not true. By far the loneliest people are the kids. The young ones, something like 80% of Generation Z describes himself as lonely. Now, this is the most socially connected via technology generation that ever has been, and yet they're lonely. This is what happens. If, this is, if Christians can't stand up and witness against this destructive technology, 
who's going to, what hope is there? Yeah. So, Rod, in a moment, I want to turn to your newer book, uh, Live Not By Lies. Before we do so, maybe bri- let me bridge uh, between the, the two book themes uh, with a personal reflection and then have you comment on it. And I think uh, many uh, Christian leaders and just Christian parents maybe will identify with this. But I found myself not long ago going through a real internal struggle. And it felt like, and I think as I uh, journaled and reflected on it, was grief. Uh, but it was, a, it was a, a sense of almost despair that it, things are coming so fast. And, and half-jokingly, my 20-year-old daughter said to me, uh, Dad, well, at least you're going to be dead soon. I've got to raise children in this you know, mm. culture that's coming at us. And you get a sense of, we tried, but we lost, I think is a way of putting it. Because my framework has been William Wilberforce, right? One who stood against the evil of the slave trade for 20 years and rallied all of their best efforts from cultural influence to political influence and fought back the tide of evil and won the day. And that's what inspires us, and perhaps particularly as Western and as American Christians. Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement. Exactly. Led by pastors. The abolitionist movement. These things were kind of a part of our DNA in terms of how we thought of ourselves as Christians who are trying to to preserve uh, goodness in in a world that's, that's, that's increasingly evil. But I had to come to a point of recognizing, okay, perhaps that was right for that moment in history. But maybe we're not in the Wilberforce era anymore. Maybe we have moved into the Dietrich Bonhoeffer era. There was no way he was going to stop or could stop what was coming. So what did he do? He prepared the next generation to stand strong through the coming storm. And strangely, I found a sense of, of hope in that, because, or at least of clarity, that this is my assignment. There's hope and clarity. Yeah, because... Otherwise, you feel a sense of paralysis. But talk about a shifting of mindset and the struggle, perhaps, of that shift in mindset. I think that you put your finger on why I've had trouble getting the Benedict Option taken seriously by many Christians. And the book has sold very well. It's in 11 languages now. But I found, especially in the American church, real resistance to it because I think people just don't want to believe that times have shifted so radically. But they have. And if we continue to fight the last war, so to speak, the last culture war, we're going to leave our kids completely undefended in this new order. In any case, we now have to realize that just because we lost a culture war doesn't mean that we quit being Christians or that we have permission to abandon the faith handed down by the apostles So that means we have to do what Christians around the world and most countries do, and most Christians in the history of Christianity have done, which is to learn how to be a suffering church. You know, and this is not a depressing thing. It doesn't make me happy, but uh, it's not fatalistic. You know, it's hopeful. This is the thing that is so key to developing the sort of uh, spiritual resilience that will get us through this. A lot of people think of hope as being a synonym for optimism, but it's really not. Mm. You know, an optimist thinks everything is going to be okay. Well, tell that to the martyrs. Tell that to the persecuted church in, in Egypt, for example, or in China. Things aren't going to turn out okay, or if they do, we kind of might have to suffer a lot first. But that's not Christian hope. Christian hope is the assurance that no matter what happens, God will not abandon us. 
do you think part of our struggle, particularly in the West and in the U.S. church, is compared to history and compared to the wider experience of Christians around the world? We have um, been on a cruise ship, not a battleship. And now we realize, wait a minute, this is a spiritual battleship. I don't mean a political battleship, a spiritual battleship that will require sacrifice and, and so forth. Well, it's one thing for me to step foot on a battleship and say, okay, I'm ready to, 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 to endure whatever I'm called to endure. It's another thing when I'm looking at my children and trying to prepare them for what may be far worse. Um, so the hope that it brings, the clarity that it brings um, is helpful, but I think grief is, a, is okay, yeah, wouldn't you yeah. say? You know, I, I, I want to live in a country that is religiously vibrant, where people are free to serve the Lord. Uh, this is a good thing, but that's not in the cards now. And I, it's, I think Gandalf tells Frodo in Lord of the Rings that, you know, you just have to do the best you can at the times you've been given. And that's what's happening now. Um, we can't sit here and and say all is lost. Uh, this is something that it's a temptation for me because I tend to be really... Um, and caught by decline and fall narratives. Uh, and well, and it's your job, right? It's my to, job to, to, yeah. to point yeah. out that the, you're a rather depressing person, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, to, to to invite to a party, but uh, no. Here's the weird thing about it: that when people they just read me, they think I must be gloom and doom all the time. But when they actually meet me, they're like, "I didn't expect that." Well, it's because Christ is in my heart. You know, my, the, the job I have is to take note of what's happening in the world and analyze it yeah. and say, "This is what the, how we Christians should think about it." But in fact, I, I'm a joyful person because of my church around us, because of my faith, because of the friend, Christian friends I have, and because God has given so much beauty. The world remains sunlit despite this catastrophe. Well, I would suggest uh, maybe your experience is similar to mine because I know you, you interact with those who are persecuted, which leads us into actually your new book. Um, but my role is to work with persecuted Christians around the world. And it's, it's mysterious how much joy and hope I derive from those who are in much more antagonistic contexts, much suffering beyond anything we can really grasp in our, in our setting. And yet there is an underlying joy, an underlying sense of clarity on who I am and what I'm called to that is inspiring. And so I don't take as much encouragement from what's happening in the West. I take encouragement from those who are much further down that path. The Coptic Christians have been suffering for more than a thousand years. Uh, we can learn a lot from them in terms of how you maintain a distinctive Christian identity and how you continue to be a witness and a testimony to the gospel in the midst of a hostile context. Well, at that point of our conversation, Rod and I transitioned to talking about his other more recent book, Live Not By Lies. But I think this is a good place to end today, and I'll share that portion of our conversation in the next episode. Listen, I think the overwhelming emphasis here is that we're not alone in this. Christians from the very beginning of the church to the present day have faced opposition, and we shouldn't be surprised that that's happening in our day and in our context. So take heart as you continue to make the courageous choices necessary to be a counterculture parent. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast was brought to you in part by dryfaithhome.com. We help local churches reach and disciple busy families. We'd love to help you if you're interested. Again, dryfaithhome.com. If you'd like to support our work, then give to your local church because that is your most important reinforcing community.